0: You're listening to a message delivered at First Family Church from the series The Kings and the Kings, Expectation in the Books of the Kings. For more information and messages, visit our website at firstfamily.church. Trust this morning, God's Spirit will just continue to move in us And this time around His Word. It just kept getting worse you know, I'm not speaking about what's happening in Second Kings yet, I'm speaking about that February when our son, who was then eight years old, uh, had had a fever for about a week. We thought, well, maybe it'll pass, maybe it's who knows what, you know, kids get sick a lot sometimes, right? But after a week, we thought, let's take him to the doctor to figure out what's wrong. Julie did, and come to find out he had strep throat. She goes back and says, It's strep. And so we're thinking, I wonder who else is going to get it. And sure enough, it just kept getting worse. His sister got it next. A few days later, his other sister got it. And as if it wasn't bad enough with three sick kids, um, I got it and Julie got it. It was a long February. And add to that, Julie was six months pregnant. Uh, We, at times, thought, is this month ever going to end? I think if you're a parent, maybe if you're a child here, you've had that thought. Sometimes the days, the weeks, they kind of run together, and you're just like, man, is this ever going to end? If you had that thought, can you just kind of nod your head? Like, yeah, you've been there, and probably far worse for some of you. That's just a simple story from our past. Well, remember that feeling you had in... Those moments, and I don't want you to multiply that times a thousand, and then take that number and multiply it times a thousand again, and you will begin to have some sense of the desperation in the book of Second Kings. It seems like it is just an incredible um, journey of one king to the next, all headed in the wrong direction. This is what's going on in the book of 2 Kings, especially in chapters 11 through 13. Will you find your Bibles and locate that portion of Scripture, would you? 2 Kings 11, we're going to be looking at three chapters this morning. And we're going to see that in these three chapters, it just keeps getting worse. If you recall, as chapter 11 opens, Jehu is... Not only the king in the north, but he's also God's instrument of execution upon kings in the south and north. And so he carries out God's judgment. It's not a pretty picture. As he does so in the south, then this mother of the one who was executed, Athaliah, she kind of takes over as queen. She has a murderous rampage against the grandkids. She's cutting down all the heirs. And the southern kingdom's wondering this, are we just one infant away from extinction? The north isn't any better. Jehu is king officially there and yet Syria is slowly dismantling Israel. This continues even in the reign of his son Jehoiahaz and into the reign of his grandson Joash. Add to that the fact that Elisha is dying and the grandson king is now worried if we're not one prophet away from extinction. So as you look at both kingdoms, they're wondering, man, are we one child away from extinction? Are we one prophet away from extinction? Is there any hope? Things are looking bleak. Well, I don't want to spend the time this morning answering the question with simply a yes. Because I think we would all, since we know the story, if I ask you the question, is there any hope, what would you say to me? Yes, but we know that answer. Where I think the intrigue lies is in how God shows hope, how he provides hope, how he actually proves he is their hope. And I want us to look this morning at how God showed himself to be their hope through what I call two bookends of hope. I'll show you a simple chart. Um, It will kind of show you how we're going to approach this today. At the beginning of chapter 11, there is a simple story. Now, it doesn't mean it's not complicated in how it's carried out, but it's relayed to us simply. And it provides a bookend for the beginning of these chapters. And in the end of 13, there's another story, and it provides a bookend on the the other end. And both of these bookends are characterized by an, an environment, atmosphere of death, and unbelievably, an atmosphere of God's power. In the first bookend, we're going to see God's power to preserve his people done through a providential means. In other words, very normal, over a long period of time, almost uh, in the course of life, God just proves his power. You may even say under the radar, almost. In the second bookend, we're going to see God proving his power to preserve his people in a very miraculous way. But what you find common is that both bookends share that, that, that God is powerfully preserving His people, just in different ways. I think this will showcase a, a beautiful thing that we need to know, that God still provides hope. He is still our hope. Now, a couple of things about these bookends. They cover a period of about 50 years. Now, that's a general time frame. We have narrowed it down to a more specific number. So, I want to go back to the chart we used last week to simplify everything. Yeah, I thought you liked that joke again, right? When you find something humorous, go for it again, right? Uh, and notice the yellow additions we've added. Really, what we're talking about in this uh, set of chapters, it covers about 44 years. And I'm a little hesitant to be this exact, but I think it's, we're safe on this ground. Uh, Athaliah's reign, when it began, we'll see in chapter 11, verse 1 and then Elisha's death, that's about a 44-year period. Now, I did some research last week, has Chris helped me, and we kind of did our best to kind of narrow this down to understanding that these bookends kind of provide parameters for about 44 years. And I want you to see that because often we think, well, where is the hope that I need to stand on today or tomorrow or next week? But the truth is, God provides hope for us in the long picture as well. Over many years, He is our hope throughout our life. This would be a good example of how he does that in these these three chapters and these two bookends. So what do you say we dive into bookend number one, can we? How did God preserve his people in a providential manner at the beginning of this 44-year period? Well, 2 Kings 11, verse 1, the Bible says this, Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, remember he was executed by Jehu, She arose and destroyed all the royal family. Probably there are references to grandkids. I say that because Ahaziah had already killed all of his brothers. So you have this murderous family, to be frank with you, intent on power at all costs. He murders the brothers. Now when he is killed, the mom murders the grandkids. There's just no heirs going to be left if Athaliah has her way. I like verse 2. What's the first word? Say it with me. But. Jehosheba, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah. So this would be the soon-to-be king's aunt. We'll call her Aunt Jehosheba. She took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being put to death. And she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. And by the way, this narrative is almost told exactly the same in 2 Chronicles 22. So there's a companion passage that shares the same thing. It says in verse 2 again that they hid him from Athaliah so that he was not put to death. Ah, there's the remaining heir, still alive. He remained with her six years, I think speaking there of the nanny or the nurse, maybe Jehosheba. Probably both to some degree. Because over six years, they had to care for him, help raise him, guard his goings and comings. You see this laid out in the rest of the chapter. And this was all done kind of secretively under the radar. But they did this. Notice the last phrase. He was hidden in the house of the Lord while Athaliah reigned over the land. She had no idea that she really wasn't queen after all. The king was right under her nose, wasn't he? Here's what's more ironic, or should I say sovereign, the real king was right above her head. Here's God orchestrating every bit of this as the true king, hiding the real physical king, Joash, the whole time Athaliah is thinking she's reigning as queen. This would make a great six-part drama on Netflix, wouldn't it? We could binge this one Saturday, right? I mean, there's so much spying and espionage and drama and intrigue. This is what's happening, and this is a a, a simple start to a 44-year period in which we see God providentially preserving His people, showing us that because of the acts of Jehoshaphat, the line was not lost, and it would be fulfilled in Christ. He preserved His people, even down to one infant, Joab. This is quite incredible, quite amazing. Now, I, I, I contemplated spending all of our time in these three verses for one reason. I think Jehoshaphat is a beautiful character, don't you? I mean, what a courageous woman. I mean, when you read these three verses, you just can't help but love her. I mean, you get the sense in here that, first of all, she's really kind of unknown. She's unseen. But let's not make the mistake and think she's unimportant. One commentator says, this is the lady who saved Christmas. (laughs) I mean, she really, by an act of, of God's grace and I think God's power, knew somehow to rescue this remaining heir. And she did this within a culture that wasn't friendly to righteous people. Do you recall what her brother had done previously? murdered his brothers before he was killed. Now, Athaliah is killing all the grandkids. The kingdom as a whole is not in a good place spiritually. They're away from God. They're in the middle of, of judgment on the nation as a whole. And yet, here's this bright spot of a lady. Knowing instinctively, intuitively, and I think supernaturally, I must rescue Joash. And in so doing, God preserves the line. You see, there's nothing really spectacular or or famous, or, or powerful about Jehoshaphat. Now, she is Jehoiada's wife. He's the priest that really impacts Joash as he's raised. You'll find this in 2 Chronicles 22 and 23. So Je- Jehoshaphat's not, a, uh, not a, um, you know, a, a powerless person. She's not characterless. She's standing strong in a dark culture, but she's not like the prime player. Jehoiada really is the prime player. Joash becomes the king, she just kind of this mentioned once. She's not mentioned much else. And yet, she is the active agent in how God preserves his people. I just love Jehoshaphat. Now, I want to pause there. I don't want to spend the whole message on that, because I think it's applicational more than anything. But the point is God preserves his line. That's really the point of the text, the real leaning of the narrative. We see that playing out. But can I just pause there for a minute and make an application? Especially... To so maybe some Jehoshaphat's in our midst, some strong, beautiful, courageous women who perhaps at times feel unseen, unknown. Because, like her, you're spending years kind of hidden away in your house, raising your kids. You have only a few seconds a week for relationships. I suspect at times you feel like you're missing out on what's really happened around the country. If I could just get outside of this palace, right? Maybe you feel like nobody knows your name. You're not able to do really all that you want in church or maybe in the community. Sometimes your time just seems like it's just eaten up. I want to say to you with great clarity and sincerity, you may feel unseen, You may think no one knows you exist. You may feel like you're operating under the radar, but you are not unimportant. And just as Jehoshaphat was crucial in the formative years of the next king's life, so there are in this place many moms who are crucial in the lives of their kids who will be the next leaders of this generation. Thank you for For staying at the task, being beautifully courageous in what may seem to be like an unseen, almost unrewarding, in the moment kind of task, but it is not unimportant. As I thought about this and read some about it in different commentators, I ran across something that Ralph Davis wrote. I don't read commentaries much to you, but I've got to read this one. Because he really hits the nail on the head in a humorous fashion. And since I'm not good at humor, but I want to try to find it, I want to read it to you. It's great. He really captures the essence of what's happening here. Listen to what he says. Isn't this the glory of God that he does not need powerful or prominent people? So we will be wrong if we become fixated on Jehoshaphat. We could easily do that, couldn't we? We'd start marketing Jehoshaphat mugs. Jehoshaphat sweatshirts, Jehoiada, Jehoshaphat coffee table books. We'd try to get Jehoshaphat on the Christian TV network. He says, but no, instead see Yahweh's method. No spectacular or miraculous intervention at this point. In other words, there's just the faithful living of a life by regular people over the course of time. But that's actually what God used here. He goes on to say, he had just the servant he wanted in just the right place at the very time. And so our only response should be to stand and sing this doxology. Praise God from whom gutsy women come. Isn't that awesome? He's exactly right. This story that unfolds over the next three chapters really begins with a bookend of a courageous, beautiful lady that most of us have never heard of and won't hear from again. But she saved Christmas. She was the instrument in the normal means of everyday life that God used to preserve his people and not let the line be lost. As you read the rest of the chapter, by the way, you'll find that Joash does become king. Jehoiada becomes one of his main mentors. And it is a decent time in Judah's history. Let's skip now to chapter 13 and let's see the second book in, can we? I'll cover the middle in a moment. I don't want to kind of show you the bookends first. So, Judah is experiencing some good days in Joash's reign as the boy king. North of them in Israel, things aren't uh, very pleasant. Jehu reigns, he dies, his son takes over, Jehoiah has, he dies, and eventually, Jehu's grandson, Joash, is reigning. So, what do you have in both kingdoms? You have a Joash on the throne, correct? So the same name again is in place like it was last week we saw. So Joash is reigning in Israel, and he hears that Elisha is about to die, and so he goes to talk to Elisha. And I've often wondered this week, why does Joash, and by the way, it's also called Jehoiahash in here, same person, just different spelling of the name in Hebrew. Why does Joash in the northern kingdom go to talk to Elisha? Here's why. I think he's worried that his leverage point with God is going to fade away. He's thinking, if Elisha dies, he's the voice, the power. He's the connecting point. If he dies, man, I'm toast. And so their relationship wasn't really one built on genuineness and authenticity. I think he's got a long crowbar every time he talks to Elisha, don't you? He's trying to leverage him for something. So he goes to him, and he starts talking to him, and he uses phrases that were used in Elisha's calling at the beginning. He's trying to say, Elisha, if you die, what's going to happen to me and us? Is there any hope for us? They had this conversation at the end, basically Elisha does promise him through an intriguing set of circumstances that he would defeat Syria three times. The inference is that he could have had more victories had he'd had more faith. Now, let you read it on your own. Just know that at the end of the conversation, he says, you'll strike Syria down three times. And then the text in verse 20 does something quite interesting. It just simply says, so Elisha died, this is 2 Kings 13, 20, so Elisha died and they buried him. That's all it says. And then the most interesting of insertions. Look at this next story. It has nothing to do, we think, with what's going on with the kings and Syria, military invasions, sick prophets. Look at this next story. Just two verses. Now, bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, speaking here of a man in Israel... The marauding band was seen, and the man who was being buried was thrown into the grave of Elisha. Isn't that interesting? You kind of paint the picture for you. They're having this funeral service in Israel, the northern territory, and it must be in the spring, and they see this band of Moabites kind of breaking in, breaking over, maybe causing a skirmish. And so instead of staying around to fight that, they're probably not geared for battle, they're at a funeral, they just hit the road, get out of Dodge. And what do to do this body? Let's throw him in this grave. But little did they know that grave was Elisha's grave. So they tossed him in there. The scriptures tell us next that when this man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Folks, there's nothing providential over time slow about that. That's just flat out miraculous, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine and being the man who is, well, imagine being dead. I don't know if you can imagine that, but he's dead He gets buried in a hurry, and next thing you know, he's on his feet walking out of his own funeral. I mean, the text is so interesting here. It doesn't tell us what the man did, what the man thought. It doesn't tell us what folks said to him. Can you imagine being the folks who were burying him? They ran away, right? They're back in town probably, maybe in a few hours. Like, didn't we just bury you? Like, what's with that, dude? You know, and he's interacting with them. Here's what I think is going on. The reason the author inserts this story is because he's showing something. Yes, the prophet has died, but God's power hasn't. And I think every time Israel, and possibly King Joash, saw the man walking around who they thought was dead but was revived when he hit Elisha's bones, I think they remembered, yeah, God is still powerful. A living testament. And what was he powerful to do? Well, let's keep reading because I think this Odd story that's inserted actually shows us what happens next. So the king of Syria continues to oppress Israel, but the Lord was gracious to them. He had compassion on them. He turned to them. Why? Not because of the grandson, Joash, and really not because of Elisha, because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. Isn't this a beautiful picture of God's power preserving his people and keeping his covenant? So watch this. In the first bookend, the line is not lost. God providentially, powerfully kept it intact. In the second bookend, the covenant's not broken. God has miraculously miraculously showed he has the power to keep his covenant in spite of what other people do. After all, it was an unconditional covenant. It was up to God and God alone, and he kept it by his own power. And I think that's the point of this odd story that I see as the as the, as the second book in. The man who was thrown into Elisha's grave and came back to life because he touched Elisha's bones. We don't know what happened to the man afterwards, who he talked to, where he went, but we know this much. Elisha didn't come back to life, but God's power was alive. And it proved to be enough to keep God's people alive with God, the covenant intact. So you have two bookends. One where God's power is providentially showed over a period of time and one where God's preserving power is shown miraculously, instantaneously, in a sudden moment. But they both show us something. God is preserving His people. He's not letting them go. They belong to Him. Now, I want to bring historical fact to you that I think will help you as you process the kings and even what's about to come. So listen very carefully. I hope that right now in your mind you're saying, okay, I believe that, Todd, that God does hold on to his people. It was his power that preserved them. He kept the covenant for his own name's sake and his people's sake. But didn't the northern kingdom in just a few years get overrun by Assyria? And isn't it true that they never really returned? Didn't only the southern kingdom return? You are exactly right. So how can you say, Todd, that God kept his covenant or didn't break his people? They never came back. That's a great question. I'm really glad you asked. Here's what's going on. God has no obligation to a breakaway kingdom with a false capital. That's exactly what happened when Jeroboam decided to start a new kingdom... North of the holy city. God's obligation was to His people. Here's what's so beautiful: Watch this church. If you read Nehemiah, when after seventy years, the southern kingdom, uh, upon Cyrus's rule, is allowed to come back and begin to rebuild the temple walls and um, the temple. Excuse me, the the city's walls and the temple. When that occurs, when Nehemiah registers the people, there is someone. From every tribe in Jerusalem. So I have a question for you. Did God preserve his people? He surely did. Did he keep his covenant? Most assuredly. Maybe not in the way that would honor a breakaway kingdom and a false capital. But to his holy city and to the tribe and the line of David that would bring forth the Messiah. God was completely eternally faithful, preserving his people, protecting them. What a powerful God. So this is what's happening in the two bookends, in the north and the south. Okay. God is providentially acting on behalf of his people, protecting them, preserving them, and he's miraculously doing it on the other end. What's happening in the middle? Just briefly, let me just simply say this to you. In the middle, really, is a continuing spiraling of both kingdoms. In the north, it's really three wicked kings. None of them sought the Lord. Oh, of course, Jehoahaz did seek the Lord once in chapter 13, verses 4 and 5. And because God is gracious, he gave Israel, verse 5 says, a Savior. I think that's referring, by the way, to Joash at the end of 13. A Savior who, for a time, was used by God to push back the Syrian army three times, as in the prophecy of Elisha. And they had some rest. Could this be an allusion as well to the Savior that was to come? Possibly, a prophetic type of reference. But even in Joash's temporary help to push back Syria, it wasn't the kind of help Christ would bring. So the covenant wasn't broken because of God's mercy and power, and it was fulfilled in Christ. The line in the south wasn't broken because of God's mercy and God's power. This is really all because of God's power. So in the north, you have these wicked kings. In the south, you have this wicked queen, as well as a couple of kings. Joash, by the way, was a pretty decent king, and I say that because Scripture says that. Scripture records for us that Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord. However, if you read this, the Chronicle narratives, 2 Chronicles 22, 23, 24, and you read 2 Kings oh, 11, 12, I think, and this is a personal opinion here, I think you can find evidence that Joash was more like a Jehoiada-mentored king. And when Jehoiada kind of distanced himself, when Jehoiada died, when he wasn't as influential as possible, Joash seemed to be more of a compromising king. Now, that's not taken away from the good things he did with the temple at all, but I think you'll find that in the later in his life he made compromises with uh, warring nations. In fact, the money that he raised and the way he protected the people that were working on God's temple, he actually gave that away towards the end of his life. That's when Jehoiada wasn't around. So I would tend to say Joash is someone who's really dependent upon Jehoiada. It's not bad or evil, but just keep that in mind that both of these kingdoms, north and south, were in really difficult, dark times. And yet, church, watch this, in the middle of difficult, dark times, what is God doing on both ends? showing that He is powerful to provide their hope. And their hope is in Him, in saving the line and keeping the covenant. This is a stark realization, I want you to understand, that their hope wasn't in how they held on to Yahweh. Their hope wasn't in that they kept the covenant. Their hope was in that God kept the covenant. Their hope was that He had not forgotten them. He did not abandon them because, quite frankly, church, they had forgotten Him. They had abandoned Him. In fact, just this week it hit me, in these chapters, in these books, more often than not, they belong to God more than God belongs to them. They're trying to rid themselves of Of of, uh, the kind of worship that's exclusive and one way to Yahweh. They're trying to rid themselves of their cultural distinctiveness. They're trying to shed any type of of brand that says we belong to God. And yet God would not let go of them. What a beautiful picture of a powerful, faithful God. And so this was their only hope, church, that, watch this, that they belonged to God. And that is our only hope as well. That we belong to God. That when we're faithless, He is faithful. That when we deny, He cannot deny Himself. It is God who shines the light of hope in our dark times and holds us firm when we're sure we're slipping. It's God who remains faithful, keeps us from falling. Why? Because He will be true to His name and His people. Our only hope is God and the truth that He owns us, not that we own Him. In fact, let me show you some verses that I think prove this in the context of the New Covenant. Here's two verses from the New Testament. And they're speaking of our hope now in God, and God's possession of us. Hebrews chapter 6, a little lengthy here, but watch this passage. He starts with the Old Testament saints, right? And when God wanted to show uh, more convincingly to the heirs of, uh, of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, in other words, what he would do over the long haul, he guaranteed this with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, now watch this next word, we. So he moves from the Old Testament heirs to whom? New covenant people. We. And he's saying we have a fle- we have fled for a refuge, and we have this strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So he's including this us in this same people. And we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Church, listen very carefully. He speaks here of hope as an anchor, but often we... Um, misunderstand this, this analogy, this diagram. We think the anchor's on this side, don't we? That God's throwing down an anchor, and we lodge it here with us, and we got the anchor we're holding on. That's not the point of the picture. The anchor is in heaven. The other end of the anchor is tied to us, and though though we may want to run away, slip, or fall, or stumble, we're not going to, because where's the anchor? It's in heaven. Our hope is in heaven, and we're tied to Him. Those who believe God will hold firm. How beautiful that I'm not responsible for the anchor. God is, and I'm tied to that. That's my hope. No wonder Jude would write later, Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Who's keeping us from stumbling? It's not me. It's not you. It's a miracle that any of you are still saved, that I'm still saved. That's a miracle of God because we could be lost. We would be lost. But instead, God is keeping us. He's keeping us from stumbling. He'll present us one day blameless. And so watch this. To Him, the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time, now and forever. Do you see what's happening here? God is showing us that just as He kept the people of the Old Testament, as we've been grafted in, He now keeps the people of the New Testament. The truth is, it's one People of God from start to finish, and He is preserving His people by His power, both in providential ways and miraculous ways. Praise be to God. So our take-home truth just kind of crystallizes in front of us. We've said it several times. You've heard it. But let's put it in some simple words and say it together. In fact, let's confess our take-home truth this morning, can we? Let's just say this with vigor and passion, doctrinal confidence. Here's here's what we're after this morning. Say it with me. Ready? Our only hope in life and death is that we belong by grace through faith to God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but you just answered the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. you also answered the first question of the new city catechism the question goes like this what is your only comfort in life and death and i think by comfort they mean hope it's the same idea because in the answer they give it basically is this right here we i reworded it a little bit but the truth is this is almost verbatim from the answer to the first question in both the heidelberg catechism and the new city catechism what is your only comfort in life or death. Can you trust yourself to hold on to yourself? To hold on to God? Can you what, what what do we lean on when things keep getting worse? When it's dark times? What is our only comfort? Would you say with me, church? Let's answer the question. Our only hope in life and death is that we belong by grace through faith to God and our savior Jesus Christ. Maybe you're wondering why? That's the first question. Why does it matter? Because the first, most essential thing to learn is who is able to provide and who is responsible for this hope we have as believers. It's God. And this hope he's provided is in all reality a person. It's Jesus Christ. And so in both providential, watch this church, in both providential and miraculous ways, God has given us the hope of Jesus Christ. And when I say that to you, you may think, Todd, why were you explicitly referencing providential and miraculous? That sounds like what you said in 2 Kings. Like, there were two bookends. 2 Kings 11, the providential preserving power of God. 2 Kings 13, the miraculous preserving power of God. And you're saying that that's true about the life of Christ? Like, it is. Let me show you something I think is just—it's uh, just beautiful to meditate on. Both of these bookends are comprised by an environment of death. Would you agree with that? Elisha's dying in bookend two. Athaliah's murdering grandkids in bookend one. One involves a birth of a child and the saving of that child. The other was kind of this death of Elisha, but God's power still continuing. Now, we've told you for over a year and a half that all of these narratives, these books, point to the ultimate king, right? In fact, our series is called what? The Kings and the, it's not hard to spot. We've been aiming at Christ every week in these narratives and pointing to him. Well, man, this week probably is one of my favorites because it it just kind of dawned on me. I just kept reading and thinking and meditating and praying. Have you ever thought about the two bookends of Christ's life? They're both comprised of an environment of death. Did you know that? Well, it wasn't Athaliah. It wasn't even the queen. It was King Herod. He's trying to murder every boy two years old and younger. He's trying to get rid of every heir possible. He doesn't get rid of Jesus, though, does he? How? How? Did, did God send down a, a, a star or some kind of force field or some kind of glowing shield and protect him in a miraculous way? No, he actually just had his parents go to Egypt, <laughs> like leave the country. And let's think about this, church. Even the birth of Christ before they fled to Egypt was very providential. Now, that's not saying it wasn't miraculous in the virgin birth completely. We wholeheartedly affirm and believe in the virgin birth. But we're saying in the way it was carried out, it looked very human it happened over a course of months i mean it wasn't that mary was pregnant one day and then the next day she delivered it took her nine months people heard about it they had questions they were skeptics there was criticism she had the journey to uh have the baby they got into a stable kind of cave-like thing they had to raise him he was born i don't believe it was a silent night by the way it's a nice song but it probably wasn't true if you have a newborn it was probably pretty noisy and pretty messy they had the two-year-old deal, the four-year-old deal, the eight-year-old deal. They had the 12. I mean, yeah, all these things happened over the course of time. But what was God showing? That he was bringing his line to fruition and to ultimate completion in Christ. Christ had come. But it happened on his birth in an environment of death and yet in a very providential way. Look at this verse in Galatians 4.4. 4. Let me show you the providential nature of Christ's birth. This is a quite intriguing verse. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. And watch these next few phrases. Born of a woman, born under the law. Like, that's just fully man, isn't it? We're right there. And yet He was born to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. There's the miraculous, supernatural part, right? So the birth of Christ, in some ways, it's kind of the ultimate fulfillment of 2 Kings 11. Like, wow, I never, I never saw that. Yeah, in an environment of death, God providentially brings the fulfillment of his line. Let's go to the second bookend of Christ's life, his actual death. No doubt that was an environment of death. But was it a miraculous event? It was in this fact that though it was carried out at the hands of Roman soldiers and Jewish leaders, Three days after he was buried, God raised Jesus from the dead in a sudden, miraculous way. The tomb was empty. In fact, Matthew tells us this that when Christ was raised, other tombs broke open. Other people got up, kind of like in Elisha's story, right? And they begin to walk around the city of Jerusalem. Can you imagine being in the city, maybe having, you know, like a cup of coffee at the Jerusalem Starbucks or something, and you're just kind of chatting? All of a sudden, this guy that you thought had been dead for, you know, 50 years comes walking by, like, What's up with that? You know, I mean, an amazing miraculous thing happened in the resurrection. So, so suddenly begin to see something. 2 Kings 11, 2 Kings 13, they really point to the birth and the death of Christ. One very providential, but God showing his power to preserve his people, and one very miraculous, but God showing his power to preserve his people. And by the way, just like the northern king, Joash thought that if Elisha dies, we're without any power. I bet the disciples felt the same way. They were worried about Christ leaving. I mean, if you leave, where's the power? So what did Jesus do? Fifty days after uh, he uh, arose, he ascended to heaven. And he sent the Holy Spirit, God's power with us. So, though Jesus isn't here physically, his power surely is. And so as I've been there, You kind of process this? I thought, God, you you are incredible. Your narratives, they don't just point to historical facts and figures, rise and and fall of kings and queens. They genuinely point to Christ in very specific ways. And so when you think about these two bookends, please don't stop your thinking with Athaliah, Joash, Jehoiaz, or Joash, Or even Elisha. Oh, let your heart be drawn to the fulfillment of every one of these. And that is in Christ. After all, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection for us is the reason he is our only hope. And so it makes songs like this mean even more to us. My hope. Hope is built on nothing less. Like we sing that. We probably just say it. But suddenly after seeing these two chapters and seeing Christ's life, suddenly, oh, I see now my only hope is that I belong to God. So my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So, I dare not trust the sweetest frame. But wholly lean on Jesus' name. Amen, church. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground. There is no other hope. There wasn't for Judah or Israel. There isn't for us. We don't have a plan B as uh, Sean was referencing. Plan A is Jesus Christ. He is our only hope. And he's worthy of it because of what he did in fulfilling the line and the covenant, bringing all of God's promises to completion in Jesus. So think about that song some more. And notice the words we're going to sing. And the text we examined the truths we learned watch this when darkness seems to hide his face i rest on his unchanging grace in every high and stormy gale my anchor holds within the veil on christ the solid rock i stand all other ground is sinking sand all other ground is sinking sand will you stand with me here's how the third verse goes again you'll find references you'll find allusions to what we talked about his oath his covenant his blood support me in the whelming flood When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Sing it, church. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.